Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Sadantosuchedoyehulahudi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. We are into October now. Uh, we are here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. We're explaining the Flower Dormant Sutra, the Ten Grounds chapter. And I would like to invite you all to join me to recite from the cover, cover of the text here in front of you, the name of the Avatamsaka Sutra and the names of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the flower dormant assembly, so let's do that now. Please turn to page uh, 68, 69. 
六十八、六十九页。Let's start with the Chinese on page sixty-eight. 无所临习。Okay, over to the right, English. Disciples of the Buddha. The Bodhisattva Mahasattva follows this great compassion and kindness. While he stays on the first ground, with thoughts both deep and profound. He, he practices generosity without stinginess. Okay. We've been explaining the the Ten Grounds chapter of the Flower Dharma Sutra, and it's the first ground. We're on the very the very first tenth of the chapter, and then there's the verses that repeat. And we're learning about bodhisattvas. We're studying about how a bodhisattva lives and thinks, behaves, and the sutra is generous. I guess you'd say the sutra opens it up and says, "Take a look. Here's here's what." A bodhisattva's like, and the invitation is, of course, if you're inspired, behave like a bodhisattva yourself. There's no, no sense of this is special, unique, rare. You have to be qualified by somebody with a certain process before you could ever be a bodhisattva. None of those barriers are there. None of those obstacles are put. In place. Now, having said that, I, I guess I need to be more specific. None of the obstacles to being a bodhisattva are here that have to do with your birthplace, color of your skin, size of your bank account, gender, parents' surnames,、uh, or that you happen to be the best friend of the uncle of the person who's watching the door. None of those external Criteria based on caste or wealth or lineage are there. There are. It's it's more accurate to say there are criteria, but the criteria have to do with things like kindness. You can't be nasty and practice the bodhisattva path effectively. Certainly, a lot of 
nasty people become bodhisattvas, but you have to transform that before you can actually step into the practice and have it interact with your nature because nastiness and all the, the things that would go along with being called nasty uh, are simply coverings that we ourselves hold over our nature. So the, the bodhisattva, the path of the bodhisattva, this model of behavior is universally available. And that's true for women, that's true for non-humans. It's, it's a big, big door that's being opened here. And I think I should own as we start uh, that if I was in a traditional Buddhist place, let's say Taiwan or China or Japan or Korea or Vietnam, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be allowed to sit here and say, here's what the Bodhisattva says. They would say, you don't have the right to sit there and talk as if you knew something about the Bodhisattva path with authority. Um, Because those are places where Buddhism has been for thousands of years and the church and the establishment and the organized religion of Buddhism um, has put rigid hierarchy where there was none. That's the way people do religion. That's true in Europe. That's true in this country. Buddhism is brand new. The Buddha, the teaching of the Dharma, the study of the Dharma is new in the West. Master Shrenhua, our teacher, um, was really clear that he was not going to honor artificial structures that didn't help people get to the point of the Buddha's teaching, which was try it on, see if it helps you transform your afflictions. So he lectured every night and then on Thursday nights he would come down and sit and say, okay, your turn, and his disciples would fill in, sit in front nervously, turn the pages and try to try to make sense of, try to tell a story from our experience that might connect with the sutra. Master Hua opened these texts wide and said, the Dharma's great, come on in, basically. Um, so I just want to own the fact that um, I'm here until somebody else is here. That's my only criteria for being here is that um, I sat beside this reformer for 18 years and heard him just beg, encourage, entice, tease, threaten, push people into the sutras. The, the threatening part was, was just embarrassing. It's like, I'll kneel here until you step up and lecture. That kind of threatening, you know, it's like, I'll slap myself in the face until you say you'll do it, you know, and then I'll stop and go, sure, well, don't do that. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> you know, because Sherpa would, it was really clear. His method was, his message, not his method, his message was, please make this your own work. 
Please take these as something to pay attention to. And so we do. That's why we do it every Saturday night. We open up these texts, and here what we discover is the Buddha, as I say, is very generous. He's saying, you want to know about the bodhisattvas? It's really neat. Here it is. I'll tell you all about them. Won't hold it all back. It's yours for the effort, for the understanding. So that's what the sutra is about. Here's what bodhisattvas do and think and feel. What we've just found out last week is that bodhisattvas, the last week and the week before and the week before, there were three weeks when actually Bhikshuni Hungyun was here last week, thank goodness. She lectured on the Shurangama. But what the sutra has been saying in this last section is this profound insight. The, it, the Dharma theme of the last couple lectures has been the 12 links of conditioned arising. The conditioned nature of all things. And the Bodhisattva has been saying, and that means it's the Buddha's voice behind the Bodhisattva, although the speaker of this chapter of the text is a Bodhisattva whose name is Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva, Treasury of Diamonds, Treasury of Adamantine. He's been saying, look, here's how suffering comes into being, step by step by step. But you know what? Go deeper into it and there's nothing there. Amazing, huh? You can almost hear the Bodhisattva go, amazing, huh? But it, it just pulls all the suffering into being unavoidably, constantly, and in between, or underneath, or in the heart of that, everything is insentient and void, like, he says, trees, stumps, walls, stones. And living beings don't know that. We take it as real and suffer like mad. How sad. And he immediately brings forth the bright light of wisdom and kindness, it says. The Bodhisattva looks at the situation. He says, that's just too much pain. I can't bear that. I've got to think of a way to help people wake up. So, you know, the old joke. That's, and it's, every time I tell this, there are people who've never heard it. It's so, this is like one of the first jokes you heard as a kid growing up. Right? Ready? You promise you'll, you'll laugh, right? Okay. Joke goes. One man says, you ready? You sure? Okay. You've heard this before. Why are you hitting yourself in the head with a hammer? You all know the answer, right? Really? Boy, am I glad I told this joke. I would have thought that everybody knew it. Okay. <clears throat> There's a joke. <clears throat> it's a great joke. One guy says, Why are you hitting yourself in the head with that hammer? And the guy is hitting himself in the head with a hammer. And his answer is, Because it feels so good when I stop. <laughs> right? Ha, 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 ha. Dumb, huh? Only a dumb person would go, clunk, clunk. Why are you doing that? Because when I stop, it feels really good. So first you cause yourself pain so it won't hurt. And when it finally stops, you go, oh, feels so good to not hit myself in the head with a hammer. You've all heard that joke. No? Okay. You heard it tonight. Okay. So the Bodhisattva sees living beings hitting themselves in the head with hammers. 
and says, why are you hitting yourselves in the head with hammers like that? And Bodhisattvas go, they told me this was the good part. They told me, you know, there are people right this minute who are good Berkeley Buddhist monastery lay people who have their reservations in Las Vegas for Christmas vacation. I know that's true. You don't have to tell me who you are. But you are there. You've already got your suite reserved at Harris Club, you know, at the Sands. That's called hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. This time it's going to pay off. And what do they say? Oh, I only go for the floor shows and for the food. We don't really gamble much. Much. You know. Every year they go to Las Vegas. Every year they come back short a couple thousand dollars. And they had a, quote, mark, good time. Right? Okay, that's dunk, dunk, dunk. They don't know they're going to come back minus that money having lost it and Having, you know the food in Las Vegas, the food at the, on the Strip is mass-produced 24 hours every day. You know, it's not good cuisine. And there's all the stuff, the alcohol and the, all that. So anyway, that's called hitting yourself in the head with a hammer because it feels so good and you stop. So the Bodhisattva sees this and he goes, jeez, they're doing it. They're really doing it. i got to wake them up. I gotta say, you know, if you wouldn't hit yourself in the hammer and with a head, no. If you wouldn't hit yourself in the head with a hammer in the first place, it wouldn't hurt to begin with. Right. But that takes a little bit of awareness. So that's what living beings do. That's what we do, is we hurt ourselves thinking it's the good stuff, thinking we're finally gonna get it's gonna pay off, and it doesn't, and the bodhisattva goes Okay, okay, where do we start? First of all, don't touch that hammer. <laughs> We're going to put that hammer in the drawer. The Bodhisattva Mahasattva follows this great compassion and kindness. So, that's where we start tonight, is he follows the great compassion. And while he when he stays, here means to live, but it we say dwell or stay or abides or rests or mm, places herself. Zhu lives. When the Bodhisattva lives here on this stage, has no stinginess in his heart for anything. Is not stingy at all. That's what it says. Is not in the least stingy. Stingy is one of those afflictions. Um, one of the things the Buddha does is talk about happiness, certainly. For example, nirvana, the attributes of nirvana. We hear about that. But the Buddha also very clinically just like a doctor would talk about symptoms of if, for example, if you had a compound fracture of your leg, suppose you fell off a ladder and really did it and you broke your tibia and the bone was coming through the skin. That's, that's you know, horrific thought. 
may it not be so. But if, if something that serious happened, the doctor would go, oh, here's what's wrong. You've got bleeding here. You've shattered the bone. It's relatively clean. We'll just bind it up, set it, make sure there's no infection. We've got to stabilize it. You know, this and that. He would describe it here and here and here and here and here and here. He's not saying, and you're bad and wrong. There's no judgment in the bodhisattva, in the doctor's diagnosis of your compound fracture, right? It's clinical and clear. The Buddha talks about our fanal, our afflictions, our klesha, and it's the same. It's not an opinion, it's not a judgment, it's not a scolding. It's a doctor saying, yeah, you've you got a problem here. I've discovered this and we're going to do this and this and this. Those things are called fanal in Chinese, klesha in Sanskrit, kilesa in Pali. In English, we'd say something like troubles, miseries, um, out of order, places where we do it wrong. We're out of tune. If we have affliction, that means... Black smoke is coming out the tailpipe of our Audi or our Prius. The Prius has put out black smoke. They're, I've never seen the exhaust of a Prius. I don't know. Electrical cars don't have exhaust, right? It's a mind you, it's a hybrid, but okay. So if our Prius is suddenly getting 20 miles per gallon, there's something wrong. The Prius is afflicted. When we have greed, anger, delusion, sometimes called stupidity, pride and doubt. Those are the five basic afflictions. Our car, the car of our life is out of tune. Needs to go in and see the mechanic. The Buddha is describing these afflictions that way. Something's wrong. You're out of tune. Tune it up, he says. Get it in adjustment. So the affliction's gone and you run the way you're supposed to run. Smoothly, without black smoke coming out the tailpipe of your life. Afflictions are the black smoke coming out our tailpipes. And of those afflictions, it's a set list. This is so interesting. It's not all suffering all the time. People mistake the Dharma as being nothing but pain, right? Not. The Buddha talks about nirvana very convincingly. The Buddha talks about the dhyanas very mellow, very beautifully. The Bodhisattva talks about compassion. But when he talks about affliction, it's really cold and clear. He says, Tan chen shi man, yi, greed, anger, delusion, pride, and doubt. But then there are 18 subsidiary afflictions. And of those, stinginess is huge. Stinginess is right there as a major thing that goes wrong with our lives. Something that we ought to pay attention to and find a way to tune, tune it up. Isn't that interesting? Stinginess is one of those. Another one, at the same category, jealousy. We talked about jealousy uh, last week because the Bodhisattva was kind of reading out what's wrong with living beings. Another one, flattery and deceit. We talked about that in the last couple of weeks and an amazing response came back from the folks who are listening to us online right now and from the folks here. It's like, I hadn't heard, people said, I hadn't heard 
flattery talked about in that way. I guess I do it all the time. We never looked in the mirror and saw the Buddha saying, yeah, flattery, it's an affliction. It's harmful to children and all living beings to flatter. Another one here is stinginess. So interesting, right? Here it is right here. Stingy. Who would have thought? Buddha says, major problem. Major problem. If what? If you decide that you are going to cultivate the way. If you define yourself as somebody on the Buddhist spiritual path or let's say on a spiritual path and taking the Buddha as your guide and role model. If you're walking according to a Buddhist map and you're stingy, you're going to block your road. You're not going to get where you think you want to go. That's the description. So, stinginess becomes a okay? That's You can look that one up. The category of literally called following afflictions, but they're subsidiary afflictions, not the five basic greed, anger, delusion, pride, and doubt. Those are the heavy ones that almost every one of us is fully dosed with. But stinginess, jealousy, flattery, and deceit are among the seifana. There are others, but I won't go into them until they come up organically. So, stinginess. There we go. What does it say? He practices generosity without stinginess. Doesn't hold back regarding stuff at all. Oh, how interesting. Okay, so the Bodhisattva is generous. You're inspired by the Bodhisattva path? Generosity. Generosity is a major primary dharma. Give things. Be generous with things. And when I hear that, I go, well, what? why did the Buddha have to point that out? Isn't everybody generous? And I look at myself and I go, not always. If it's something I care about, uh, think about it. Give myself excuses why I should hold on to it a little longer. They wouldn't know what to do with it. Maybe I'll give them something else. And then you feel bad about that thought. That's a stingy thought. Oh, um. So then the dialogue starts, the lawyers start to struggle inside. You know, Pretty soon your, your mind is this battleground of, of argument and counter-argument. And, and you say, oh, you know what that's called? Afflictions. Troubles. Troubles in mind. I'm not calm and quiet. What does the Bodhisattva do? Let's look further. Because he seeks the Buddha's great wisdom, he cultivates great renunciation. He, she is able to give away all things whatsoever. What is this? <coughs> this is a quality of the first stage bodhisattva. First crown bodhisattva. He, she is really able to give stuff away. Where did we run into this before? If people remember, we ran into this description before in the first practice. We were lecturing here on the ten practices chapter. 十恒品. 
And in the first practice, it's called Huan Xi Heng, the practice of happiness. The Bodhisattva is really good at giving. It says the same thing. This Bodhisattva is really good at giving stuff away. Can give absolutely everything away whatsoever without any regret or stinginess. Now, there's a causal thing here. Seeking the Buddha's grand wisdom, big wisdom, able to cultivate great she, renunciation. There's a kind of giving here that we're going to find out about that has to do with the word she and also the word shi, yi qie neng shi and she. So they're, they're equated. So da she, big renunciation, renunciation. And then yi qie neng shi, able to give. Those are different degrees of the practice of giving. And when you study the Dharma, especially the Bodhisattva path, um, you run into these words all the time. So, what are the distinctions in English for this? A lot. For example, mm, charity. Mm, for example, offering. For example, um, donations. Then tithing. Then sharing. Then getting rid of. Then mm, handing down. Bequeathing. Willing to. Right? All these different subtle ways of transferring stuff from one hand to the other. Lots of different ways. And one of those key ways is called renunciation. How about letting go of? How about dumping? Right? Cleaning out. All that. What do you do at the end of, in, in May or June, at the end of your senior year in college? You dump your stuff. Right? You dump the books. You, you find a way, you take that cardboard box full of textbooks that you paid $100 for and never opened, and you take them over to California Text and try to sell them back. And they give you, you know, 5%. And you think, at least it won't be on my shelf anymore. Right? You dump. You clean out. What do you do when you have a garage sale? What verb do you use? A garage sale, you get rid of. Right? Is that pretty much what, is that what you do at a garage sale? You kind of recycle. That's a positive spin. You hope people will take your extra stuff and give you money for it. Garage sale. All these different ways we have to talk about the subtle differences in trading material from one hand to the other. Passing stuff on. Okay? So, in Chinese, it's the same. Of course. I think every language. There's one, oh, there's one very interesting kind of giving called potlatch. Potlatch. You all know about potlatch? 
P-O-T-L-A-T-C-H. Potlatch is a kind of giving that uh, Native Americans, or just to say the Aleut people, North Northwestern Indians, have where one family per year is designated as the target family. And they give everything away. They empty out everything except one suit of clothes to cover their body and then the community gives them everything new. They receive everything they need from the community and start fresh. Potlatch. It's a custom in the village where one family gets to start fresh, gets to renew every year. And then the next year it's another family. And they have the experience of passing on absolutely everything they own and then getting a whole new set of fresh stuff to start with. And what an interesting idea. This kind of ritualized passing on of stuff, renewing of stuff. It really cuts down the garage sales among those families, right? Because you got everything's new, nothing to sell. So all these different ways of giving the Bodhisattva here, seeking the Buddha's vast wisdom, cultivates big renunciation. Renunciation is a complex idea. It has to do with letting go of with the expectation of a transformation happening. When somebody leaves the home life, they renounce. What do they renounce? Their hair, for one. Right? You let your hair go. More symbolically, you let vanity go. When you look in the mirror and you don't have any hair, it takes a long time to get used to that idea. Like, you know, rub your head a lot, you know. It's really, I didn't, never saw that before. You know. Bumps. And it's when you see your head in silhouette against the wall because a light is shining, you look, you look, it's like, that's not, you know. <laughs> Strange, you know. Guys, when they shave their beards off, the same thing. If you grow a beard, it takes, you know, you kind of get used to that image. And then you shave it off and there's this kind of, you know, it's like, whoa. I didn't know I looked like that. You let your hair go. You renounce your hair. If you're a woman, what a deal to be bald. Right? Because <laughs> this stuff is is a big part of your masculine, feminine identity. Your image, the way you've seen yourself from childhood. It's a lot of energy focused in hair and styles. So that's the kind of thing you show. Another one is you show cosmetics when you leave home. You don't have a big bag full of all those wonderful things that you looked at and 
thought about and tried out different hue, different shade, you know. It's different styles. And you have cosmetics that you haven't touched for five years, waiting for them to come back into style. So you can take them out and try them again. You know. Guys don't... The same thing. It's not different much. Guys don't have like soap on a rope, you know, in the Sangha. You don't have your favorite cologne. And that's a kind of giving up and letting go for the sake of some kind of transformation. That's all involved in sh, nung sh. Something else, this is really, really a change. Really a change. What do you give up when you leave home? Shopping. Shopping. Your relationship with retail changes. Why? Because you don't have that plastic card in your pocket or in your billfold. You don't spend time in stores comparing merchandise. Okay, why? Is there anything wrong with shopping? No. Shopping is a time-honored activity. It's a skill. Being able to find the best melon being able to find the right kind of medicine when you need it, being able to pick out the perfect gift, that's all skill. That's all important stuff in bonding friendships, in healing family members, in being a responsible friend. If you get the wrong kind of medicine because you didn't care, you didn't pay attention, you can hurt someone. All those skills are valuable skills for bonding into the web of family relationships and friendships. When you leave home, the Bodhisattva is practicing dasha, right? Those relationships are set aside not because there's anything wrong with them, but because those are not going to further your investigation into the question, who am I fundamentally? Who am I really? Who am I below my surname, for example? Women, if they get married and change their name, have already done that once. But I grew up thinking that my surname was Huang or Win, right? Now I'm married and I'm Mrs. somebody else. I'm Mrs. Chen. I'm Mrs. Tang or Li, you know. Like, but I thought you were Huang growing up, you know. So those names, you pry into those names and you go, what's underneath that? Huh, interesting. When you leave home, you are drilling down into that first question. Inside of these eyes, these ears, this nose, tongue, body, mind, skin, bones, marrow, nails, Who's in there? Who is that? And if you're really doing that, you don't have time to focus on blusher and eyeliner. Those are extra. Those don't help. So you take the blusher and the eyeliner, you take the, the, the cologne and the aftershave, and you say, okay, that's good. Maybe I can give it to somebody. Maybe I'll just put it in the closet and lock it or something, or I'll put it in a... In a in a toilet kit that I then put into my trunk. 
and pull back the energy that went into looking at that level of identity. Okay? Your face that you put on, Daban, right? That is a level of identity. That's a useful identity. That's who you were. That's who you knew yourself to be and you work on it to get it right. You, you know, the power haircut, getting the tie just right, you know, practicing that, that tie. That's useful in a certain context. The Bodhisattva is saying, doesn't help me answer my question. Who am I fundamentally right now? I'll let that identity go. I'm going deeper. I'm going beyond that one. And I don't want to put time and life energy into that stuff now. So you set that aside. You cultivate big renunciation. You transform. You set that stuff aside for the purpose of transforming, i.e. trans-crossing the form, the image. You're going to look into the image now. Do some radical shifting of that image. And here's what's interesting. The Sangha gives you a form that you can use in the meantime. Okay, look at, for example, I'll be the Sangha member in front of you for, example, for the purpose of the example. This is a form. This is a temporary identity. What is it? It's a chunk of cloth sewed together. Pieces of cloth sewn together. Minimal. Take the hair down. Don't grow the beard. I have keys in my pocket, but that's because I live in a place with doors and locks. If I was living in a big monastery, I wouldn't have a pocket full of keys. In my wallet, you can't find my wallet. If you found my wallet, you wouldn't find credit cards either, right? No wallet, no credit cards. Why? Extra for what I'm doing. This is a temporary guise, covers the body, serves to keep me warm, out of the wind, away from bugs, and cool when it's hot, and that's it. This is minimum so that I can do the other work, which is going deeper into the question, fundamentally, who am I? I, I spend a minimum amount of time per day on my appearance. <laughs> Somebody's saying, yeah, we know, you look like, we have to look at you. Would you spend a little more time on your appearance? <laughs> Would, it wouldn't hurt, wouldn't it hurt you to, you know. So, okay. So, monks and nuns, just do the minimum on the outside so they can put full focus on the inside. It's functional. This is a functional disguise or guise or costume so that I can do that stuff. Um, this is completely interchangeable with any other monastic robe. It's uh, when the sleeves get so grungy I can't stand it, we cut them off and put on new sleeves because they just they drag in the soup and when you wash dishes they get wet and then they dry and they get wet. So this gets changed but the robe itself is if I tell you if there were ten other monks here and they all hung up their robes on hooks and then somebody came and switched them I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell mine from anybody else's. 
So it's minimal. It's just designed to cover you so you can do the other stuff. Interesting, huh? So that's a big show. That's a renunciation. My wardrobe is not... It's, a, it's an empty spot where my wardrobe is, right? It's just what I cover my body with so I can go do something else. Okay. Because he seeks the Buddha's great wisdom, she cultivates great renunciation. She is able to give away all things whatsoever. With this as the foundation, with this down to the minimal, things take on a really different appearance. Things take on a whole different value. For the Bodhisattva at this level, material stuff, yu yi chie wu, right? This, the things of the world are valuable only to the extent that they can benefit others and put them in a relationship with the Bodhisattva so that they will listen to him or her speak Dharma. Stuff is valuable in that you can give it away and people will be happy to receive it and they'll listen to you. They'll take in your Dharma advice if you, if you give things to them. So Bodhisattvas practice giving after they practice giving up. Let's move on here. Okay? Let's look into our text. So wait. Okay, to there, good. Look over here. That, in, that includes such objects as wealth and granaries, gold, silver, jade and coral, jeweled ornamental articles to decorate the body, elephants, horses, chariots and conveyances, servants and citizens, cities, towns and villages, parks, groves, pavilions with vistas, wives, concubines, sons, daughters, followers near and far, and all toys whatsoever. He can give up his head, eyes, hands, and feet, his blood, flesh, marrow, and all parts of his body, begrudging none of them in order to seek the Buddha's great wisdom. Um, in the Chinese, we stop too soon. We should say, Wei qiu zhu guang da zhi hui. All right. In order to seek the Buddha's wisdom, he can give up his head, eyes, hands and feet, blood, flesh, marrow, all parts of his body, begrudging none of them in order to seek the Buddha's great wisdom. Okay. Wow, what a list. First of all, the context, for this to make sense, the context is a king. He's talking about royalty. Royalty is the only people who have elephants, horses, towns, and villages, etc., 
This is a list of the things that would distinguish a royal person, a prince, princess, a duke, a duchess, an earl and his wife, crown prince, prime minister, king, queen. They would have these things and they could give them away. Let them go. The Buddha is describing things that almost anybody in the world would say, boy, I'd love to have vistas and towers and parks and groves, all that. I'd love to have those as my own. I wonder if I could let them go. All the things that people want, the Bodhisattva is able to say, good stuff, done that, time to let it go. I'm looking for something deeper. Not a bit of this will go with me when I die. So I'd like to see if I can let it go now, says the Bodhisattva. He can give these things up. Then it goes past the external into the physical. And here's where it gets mm, really interesting. The Bodhisattva is able to give up parts of his body. Okay? Head, eyes, hands, feet, blood, flesh, marrow. All parts of his body. The sutra is really cold when it goes for principle. And this is one of those times. In the Avatamsaka, the Bodhisattva is often described as giving away parts of his body or her body. And that goes into taboo territory. Doesn't it? Like, we have things like uh, euthanasia. Major, major debate culturally. This is a cultural taboo. Talking about the body. Talking about, mm, we call it self-mortification. Mortification of the flesh, we say. And is that what this is talking about? What's different, if not? Well, it's worth pointing to. Because in the sutra, the Bodhisattva is working on the context of many lifetimes and sees the physical body as the, the most recent physical body made up of karmic conditions based on things that he or she has done in the past and he knows there's another one in store. There's another one just down the road. Furthermore, bodhisattvas have what are called huashan, transformation bodies. So they don't in any way look at this as the only one. As who in China would have an issue with this? Confucians. Okay? 
in China. Whoa, this was huge. This was the kind of passage that the Chinese read and went, this is a foreign Indian religion. This is not filial. You know the irony? This is really funny how times change. We talk about this in the past. Recently, in China, the Chinese have re-examined their policy towards religion as a whole. It's a Marxist-Leninist, Maoist context over the last, since 1949. And that carries with it a certain attitude towards religion and spirituality, opiate of the masses, things like that, pure Marxism. Recently, the Chinese have looked at that and said, you know, our Chinese way of doing that is much more enlightened. We are kaifang regarding religion. We're open towards religion. And among the religions currently practiced in China, the most Chinese of religion is Buddhism. So Buddhism has been experiencing a relatively uh, open development in the last 10, 15 years. It's things are really different. The situation with Buddhism in China is very different. Other religions too. Genuinely, the Chinese are are trying to um, re-look at, to review their policy on uh, supporting religions. So that's a good thing. Buddhism is flourishing in China right now. Now, why is that funny? It's funny because if you look into the Tang Dynasty, the Sung Dynasty, there were Confucian writers and figures who were saying, this foreign religion is destroying the fabric of our Chinese culture, our Chinese heritage. Look, these people are encouraging them to cut their eyes out, to give away their bone marrow. This is unconfucian. This is foreign we should get rid of this religion. Huge, huge argument. The essays of Han Yu and others. It's like they really went down to the mat struggling to get rid of Buddhism. Because why? Well, the emperors tended to like the Buddha Dharma a lot and the Confucians fell out of favor. It was a struggle. It was a power struggle, political power struggle. And the Confucians wanted very much to have the Buddha Dharma unfunded. So they attacked it on the grounds of it being foreign. Now, in the Xiao Jing, the classic of filial respect, what does it say? say? It says, my body my hair and my skin come from my parents. I don't dare harm it in the least. Right? Fa fu yo fu mu wei gan shi hai something. It says the, the classic of filial respect. I need to respect every hair and inch of skin of my body. I don't dare 
burn incense scars. I don't dare shave it off. It comes from my parents. That's an insult to my parents. That's classical Confucian Dharma. Okay, well, here are the Buddhists. Shave that hair off. Bodhisattva can give up his fingers, his eyes, his teeth, if needed. Okay? Bang. Now, Buddhism has become the most Chinese of religions. How interesting, huh? Times change, right? Whoa. Uh So if you read history, you get a perspective that you don't if you don't read history. So, that's neither here nor there. That's just a comment. Um, Here's the Bodhisattva saying that in order to cultivate great renunciation, I can give up everything, including my body. Mm, That's real interesting. Does it mean that the Bodhisattva is going around lighting himself on fire? Mm, Sometimes. (laughs) Okay? My poor mom. Oh, when she heard that I was becoming a monk, she said, Are you going to set yourself on fire? <laughs> I said, No, Mom, that doesn't happen every day. In fact, Master Shrinwa scolded one of my American Dharma friends, saying, You Americans would dare to do anything, he said. You are so naive, he said. That was Master Hua's comment when one of our monks said, well, sure, I think I'll burn my finger off and take a search of the Dharma. Yeah, but just, you're you're just a kid. You're wet behind the ears. Grow up. You don't even know how to hold the precepts and you're already imitating bodhisattvas, right? Now, this is in a context, this happened in the context when Tik... Kwang Duk, right? Was that his name? Set himself on fire in Saigon and didn't move. He, as a hugely controversial, politically motivated statement that was very powerful, that image of the monk sitting in the street on fire that sears into the brain Right? People aren't supposed to burn. Here's a monk who did practice something that's talked about in the Lotus Sutra. Bodhisattvas who set their bodies on fire as an offering to the Buddha. He did that and didn't waver. He didn't scream. He didn't run away. He didn't writhe all over the pavement. Maybe that Vietnamese bhikshu had samadhi. Another realm. That's not something to talk about carelessly because what was his state of being? Don't know. The impression that he gave to the world was indelibly marked in our brains. Oh, Buddhists burn themselves. My mother was afraid I was going to do the same thing. Are you all supposed to do that? You know, she didn't know. She'd never encountered Buddhism before. Her son was going to become a monk. If you read this passage in the Avatamsaka, you could go, whoa, what's going to happen? He's going to cut his fingers off. He's going to gouge his eyes out. 
I don't think that's what's being said here. Although, it's potentially there. There are stories about, in the Avatamsaka Sutra, in the first ground, in the first practice, remember, back when we studied the first practice, the Bodhisattva says, I'm going to give. I'm going to be a donor. Anytime anybody wants something, I can give it away. As soon as he has that thought, guess what happens? <coughs> Limitless, countless thousands of incalculable asamkhyas of living beings come up and say, Oh, great philanthropist. Oh, great donor. I'm really starving. I'm about to die. My body, skin and bones. I have nothing to support myself. Would you please give me a piece of your body to eat so I can continue living? And the Bodhisattva has to go, mm. I said that, didn't I? What does the Bodhisattva say? The Bodhisattva says, thank you so much for giving me the chance to practice the Bodhisattva path, to practice giving. Not only will I give you absolutely everything you want to fill your stomach, but no matter how many living beings come, I will satisfy them all. I'm going to grow a huge body in the future, in lifetime after lifetime, so I can fully satisfy the hunger of any living being who asks. Furthermore, whatever they want, I'm going to give to them. That's what the Avatamsaka Sutra says. First practice, check it out. And when you read this, I mean, that couldn't be more clear. It says, give me your body to eat. The Bodhisattva says, you want white meat or dark meat? Do you want the drumstick or the wings? You know, Here it is. Take it. All you want. And you go, what is the sutra saying? What is this? Cannibalism? Are you like, is it Saw 3? The movie, right? <laughs> you know, gouging out eyes. Is that what you're doing? Like, that's gross. That's taboo. That's horror flick stuff. Slasher films, right? Is the Avatamsaka Sutra a slasher sutra? You know, no, that's not. I mean, you could literally, you could say that's true, but the sutra is rarely that coarse. What's going on here? How are we supposed to read this? How is my mom supposed to reassure herself that her son is not going to gouge his eyes out? Okay, number one is the sutra is based on great compassion. It never departs from that. The sutra is based on transforming harm and suffering. Fundamental. Count on that. That's square one. The Bodhisattva follows this great compassion and kindness. It doesn't mean that at a certain point, as soon as he can, he's going to cut his fingers off and throw them to people. That wouldn't be kindness and compassion. It's based on harmlessness, ahimsa. Which bodhisattva is going to break his precept against killing and start killing himself? Not. Cut your fingers off, you bleed to death. Right? Cut your arm off, it's quicker. So, take that as the foundation as we interpret this. Okay? Notice I'm exaggerating to make the point. But the sutra exaggerates more. The sutra literally says the bodhisattva gives pieces of his body to people to eat. That's cannibalism. What's being said if you understand that it's not literal cannibalism? What's being said is because he seeks the Buddha's great wisdom, he cultivates great renunciation. 
It says the Bodhisattva's attitude is, I can give whatever is needed. I can let go of it. I'm not attached. He doesn't, she doesn't carelessly throw stuff away. They give whatever is needed in order to seek the Buddha's great wisdom. It's an attitude of attaching to nothing. What it says is, I see through the things of the world to get to a place beyond me and mine. The goal at all, at all times is to transform the ego and to let go of the stuff that supports the ego. Wo, wo soyo. Transforming selfishness and self-benefit. Here's where you see Master Shenhua's six guidelines come in. Number four and number five. Selfishness and self-benefit. Me and mine. The Bodhisattva is going to the heart of me and mine and letting it go like this. Opening it. Not hanging on to it. Including the thing that we're most attached to. Which is this thing. It says anything. Where is the self going to hang on? Give the self a place to perch even a hair's breadth? Not even a hair's breadth of self left. The Bodhisattva at this point lives to benefit, turn the page back, he sees all living beings such suffering, such misery that they can't get away from and in his heart compassionate wisdom arises. He says, anything that it takes, I'll bring it forward to rescue those living beings. The self will not stand in this Bodhisattva's view. That's what's going on. The Bodhisattva says, do you need my blood to drink to get you past your pain? That's fine with me. How much do you want? Right? Where's the benefit to the Bodhisattva there? Zip. Okay? That's what you're looking at. It's utter commitment to benefiting others without thought of self-benefit. It's real renunciation. The Bodhisattva is not bargaining with his ego. He's not calculating what he gets out of this. It's like, uh-uh. He's saying, nope. Those living beings don't understand that inside of those 12 links, pulling each other forward, creating the body, creating the mind, creating my habits, creating my preferences, creating my aversions and my cravings, my thirst. Inside of that, there's nothing except that process and habit and what are called xiejian, wrong views. The view that I'm really here inside this contraption called a body, it's a wrong view. But we deeply cling to that view. Bodhisattva says, what does it take to get past that view? Giving up my elephants, horses, chariots, conveyances, eyes, hands, and feet. I don't want that stuff. That's all one flavor of delusion on top of the infinite emptiness of the Buddha nature. That's what he's doing. 
What you're seeing is an effective way of transforming the ego. Primary to this thing that I call me is a view of self and what I hang on to that supports the self, me and mine. Me and mine is deep, deep, deep view, deeply rooted in there that I really exist and this is really my stuff. The Bodhisattva is saying, how am I going to shake that loose? By saying, no, actually, I've been so moved in my meditation, I've seen that there's fundamentally nothing there. In my meditation, the Bodhisattva, we've gone through this process, right? The Bodhisattva is unafraid. The five-fold fears have been transformed. He or she has been sitting there and seen nobody home, but those habits are deep. So he says, all right, in the midst of nobody home, guess what? That person sitting next to me, nobody home. That person sitting next to me, nobody home. Just habits and the 12 links. Pulling, pulling our processes, our deep samskaras, these deep autonomic processes, my opinions, my perspectives, my respiration. All that stuff is just chain reactions. Pulling, 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 linking, 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 right? And most of the time we use them to go wrong. Why? At the core is me and mine. Got to get mine or ours. I'm not selfish. It's just my family. I'll kill for my kids. Right? You and yours. No different. That's where we go wrong in the midst of that nothing going on. Okay, the Bodhisattva has seen that and says, that's so much pain. That's so much hurt. You just, you know, we go out and we kill, steal, lust, lie, drug ourselves, thinking that we're going to get a benefit for the me and mine that doesn't really at heart exist. He or she has seen that and says, I'm going to do something about it. I mean it. I'm really going to try to see if I can't let go of the me and mine at the core so that I can be convincing when other living beings look at me and say, it hurts like crazy. Say, yeah, I know, really, huh? They did die, didn't they? Your mom. Your dog. Things you loved. People you cared for. They died. It really hurts, huh? You know what? It's just a process. If the living being, if the neighbor sitting either side or your kin doesn't believe you, when you say that, they're profoundly hurt. What do you mean? But if they believe you, because why they've seen you do it, they'll go, you mean it? What do you mean? They don't exist. Tell me more, because it really hurts, and I'd like to have it stop hurting. Bodhisattva says, what I mean is that, and then you speak the Dharma, and the beings go, well, I've never seen that deeply into it. Maybe I can absorb that and maybe it'll hurt less. You know. So, I'm trying to stitch tonight into what we read before. What we read before was Bodhisattva sees how living beings in the midst of nothing there were attached. And we go out and we run them up and we hurt like crazy. The Bodhisattva says, I'm going to bring forth the great light of kindness and wisdom figure out a way to make it hurt less. Before he or she can do that convincingly, they have to 
they have to really, really let go of all things that the whole world says are me and mine. It's hard to do. It's like scraping paint off a mirror, layer after layer. It's hard to do. So here's what, what's the sutra doing? The sutra's making bodhisattvas. Here's what's ahead. This is how hard it is. Because who can let that stuff go? Only somebody who's really, really compassionate. Who really, really is selfless. Who isn't out for themselves. That's the person who can follow. What does it say? Sui Shun Ru Shi Da follows this great compassion and practices dasha. We have examples. There are great examples. Um, what does it take to build a, a little hut by your mother's graveside and sit there for three years? The world would look at that and say, what a loser. What a loser. What do you expect to get out of that? And the cultivator who brought forth a resolve would say, exactly. I.e., nothing. In fact, it's not that I want to get anything. I want to get rid of things by doing that. I don't want to go back to zero or plus one or plus a hundred. I want to go minus. I put up that sorghum A-frame. I put my north face pop tent by my mother's graveside and bring in lots of freeze-dried stroganoff, you know, veggie burgers, because I want to go negative. I want to have less than before. That's what I'm doing. Not that I hope to get anything at all. I want to get rid of stuff. That's what I'm doing. And people go, I don't get you. You're just strange. You're weird. Yeah, you bet. In the eyes of the world, the Bodhisattva is going the other direction. So much a loser. It's on the deficit side. Interesting, huh? And here's, I mean, when the sutra presents it, you go, this is consistent. This is a system. I, I see what it's saying and it's really hard to accept. This is really hard to accept because so much the world does not value this. And yet, 2,500 years later, still here. Radical document. Sutras are out there. This is out there. All alone on this edge of the spectrum. Right? World's over here. Grab for all the gusto you can get. Buy your own personal, customized, individual lie that you'll just put in the garage sale in a year. And then get another one because we got a new model for you. It's upgraded. Yeah. Um, somebody who's here tonight, I won't, I won't mention their name, uh, handed me a computer that I, had, that I had loaned years ago. And it was a computer. It was a, thir a third-hand hand-me-down when I got it. It was a fourth-hand hand-me-down when I handed it over. Now it's a fifth-hand return back. What is it? An SE30, a functioning Apple Macintosh, SE30. One 
modular unit. Remember? Anybody have an SE30? Am I the only Mac freak in the room? Okay. SE30s. It's a functioning maxed out. Eight megabytes of RAM. Man, that was the peak. Eight megabytes of RAM. When you turn it on, it goes... And then, bing, that little happy, smiling Macintosh face comes up, you know? It works perfectly. You plug it in and it works. It's got 60 megabytes of storage. Primo. Back when it was new, it cost $6,000. Nobody could afford SE30s. They were top-of-the-line Macintoshes back in 1985, I think. And it runs perfectly. You know, it's great. It's floppy drives. <laughs> floppy disk. It's got a hard drive, but it's floppy. I still have floppies. Do you still have floppies? So there you go. You know, it's an old tool that you bring back and you go, hey, you could do some serious computing on this thing. It's all serial bus, so it only goes out to like hard drives or I guess you can get zip disks that are USB and serial and you take the disk and go. You know. But it was so funny to open and it comes in its own carrying case, which weighs about 35 pounds. <laughs> I carried that on the airplane. I did. I showed up with my luggable. It's a luggable, not a portable. It's a luggable computer. And by golly, you know, you plug it in and it works first time. It's great. You know, little tiny screen, nine inch, you know, staring at. And it's a really wonderful tool that if you go to Cuba and you plug that in, you get a crowd. People go, oh, where'd that come from? That's very cool, you know. But we are here in the Silicon Valley. We go so fast. We totally look, we ran by this. That was 1985. The point is that that tool, we laugh at it, you know, but look at this tool. Same thing. Plug it in, it works perfectly. <laughs> How much RAM? Right? How much storage space? What is, is it a USB? No. Is it serial? No. Flash RAM. So this is a tool that has for its purpose the utter destruction of the ego. And it still works. But most of us can't, can't imagine what it would take to actually walk the Bodhisattva path. And yet, in our lifetime, we've got individuals who have done that. Who have said... I don't care about this. But I do care about principle. I really want to honor my relationship with my mother and tie it up. I want my mother to not worry about me next time. The filial children who do what's called lu mu xiu xiao, who cultivate filial regard by the graveside, um, have seen themselves as a burden to their mother. Right? Think of how that how you turn your perspective. It's that 
they know that moms cling to children. It's part of their body. As a result, the moms forget about cultivation. They're only concerned with the welfare of their child. The son says, I don't want to do that to this woman. This is a fine woman who needs to cultivate the Buddhahood. I don't want to get in her way because I know as a mother, she's going to cling to me. She's going to see me as more important than herself, which is totally noble, totally selfless from a maternal's maternal point of view, but it's an obstacle to her cultivation. I don't want to do that. I'm going to tie it off. I'm going to conclude it and pay back the kindness. Although classically they say it's impossible. But how many people do you know who sit by the mother's graveside after death for three years praying for sending good energy to, protecting, honoring, just respecting. That's a rare behavior, right? There's a motive there, which is finish it. Finish that relationship. I as son burden her as mother. In my role as son, I become an obstacle to her, this human being, as mom. And I care about her so much. In the future, I don't want to hang with her. I want her to be done with me. So I'm going to try to remove myself from her karmic debt sheet. What about that? I mean, what a... Isn't that interesting? It becomes guided by this total altruism, total compassion, and cold. You could say Master Shrenhua is, you know, cares for his mother so much that he doesn't care for her anymore. From the worldly perspective, he wants to sever that relationship because he doesn't. He likes her so much, he wants to set her free of him. Isn't that funny? It's like that kind of thing. I don't want you to have to worry about me anymore, so I'll just, you know, I'll stay here and repay the kindness. That's compassion. How interesting. What did Master Hua do? Did he... Give his head, eyes, hands, feet, blood, flesh, marrow, and all parts of his body, begrudging none of them to seek the Buddha's great wisdom? Yes, he did for himself and for his mother too. He gave up three years of his life when he could be out there getting the good stuff, grabbing for all the gusto. No. He said, I really care about my mom. I want to erase myself from her debts. Why? Knowing in the future she'll come looking for him. He'll come look for her if that debt is still there. That's what happens. According to the sutras, life after life, we come back to find the parents that we owe things to because they gave it to us last time. How interesting that somebody could see it so clearly that they take action at what? At the cost of serious personal loss, i.e., you're a loser sitting there by the graveside. From the point of view of the Buddha's wisdom, he's a hero. He's actually acting to reduce the suffering that will come to his mother if she looks for him and become, makes him her son again. Built in. How amazing that is. Isn't it? It's like, whoa. This person is a karmic activist. 
They're radical karmic engineers out there trying to get into the guts of it and set it right. How amazing. Loser. What do you get out of that? Never mind. Okay. So, last line. This is called accomplishing great renunciation by a bodhisattva who dwells upon the first ground. So our bodhisattva is giving, giving radical, giving up, letting go of stuff that most of us couldn't, couldn't imagine. But the sutra not only imagines it, they're telling us how to do it should we decide that's something that we want to do. The path, of the Bodhisattva path is wide open, still there, didn't go anywhere. Okay, yes indeed. Let's um, transfer the merit first because there are people who are joining us online from all over who would probably like to get some sleep. from Taiwan did the tornado did the typhoons hit there were two typhoons coming down on Taiwan at the same time and there was some sense they might go by they might go around without hitting they were heading for the north and the east Taipei and Hualien so we're listening to find out what's going on <coughs> lots of climate trouble in Asia from tsunamis to multiple earthquakes to huge storms in the Philippines, our United Religions friends in Mindanao and in uh, Manila talked about, we got lots of emails this last week about what happened in the Philippines from, from the ground and incredible suffering because of the rain. Uh, a major percentage of the families in Manila were flooded and had to move. So, lots to transfer merit to. Here we go. Every living 
The songwriting muse is really fickle. I shouldn't say that because I might, I don't want to offend the songwriting muse. Uh, I do recite the name of Sarasvati and the mantra, the Da, Ji Shang Tian Nu Zhou. And sometimes that muse shows up. And recently that has been the case. And I've got some new songs for you. It's apropos of tonight's lecture on giving and giving back. This song just popped up. It's called A Wish to Repay. People ask, What do you get from your meditation? Are you enlightened? Have you ended your frustration the wise men and women who woke up all those I reviewed say the highest state is a wish to repay a heart of gratitude Thank you to the universe. Thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. How many years did I waste? Waiting for my prize For my ship to finally come in For my payoff to arrive But freedom comes not from getting But from giving it all away Sages say, once you see the Tao, you feel a wish to repay. Thank you to the universe, thank you to the earth and sky. I may not repay my parents' kindness, but every day I try. 
people ask what do you get from your meditation are you enlightened have you ended your frustration the wise men and women who woke up all those I review say the highest state is a wish to repay a heart of gratitude there you go so that's called a wish to repay and I've got another one this is uh, I did this before here and it recently kind of fell into place. So um, I'll be going to Junru Monastery on Cloud Dwelling Mountain, Yunjushan, in Jiangxi Province in a couple of weeks. And Master Shuyin will be honored there. He's the monk who lived to be 120. And when he woke up, when he got enlightened, we know what he said. Because he wrote it down. Or people wrote it down after him. He said, the cup hit the floor with a ringing sound that echoed in the air. Empty space, too, broke to bits. My mad mind stopped right there. That's what the Chinese that I just recited says. Story goes, he was in meditation and the server who was going to give him some hot water missed the cup and poured it on his hand. And he dropped his teacup and the teacup went Ching! on the floor and he woke up. That sound broke through all his lifetimes of delusion. His, um, they call it the black lacquer barrel, burst open. So he woke up. And he wrote that verse describing what had happened to him. He likens his mind to empty space. Both broke. The sound of the, the porcelain cup breaking broke space and his mind stopped too. So his mind broke. second verse which is really powerful and 
I decided to leave the Chinese of that first verse in to give a flavor of it so people can hear the Mandarin. So the second verse goes, Burned my hand, shattered my cup, broken for good my mind. Like my family, it's lost. People are gone. Words are hard to find. This is empty, emptiness, right? Burned my hand, shattered my cup, broken for good my mind. His mind is broken, meaning his conscious mind that he's been struggling with all these lifetimes. Like my family, it's lost. People are gone. Words are hard to find. That's really bitter. I mean, it's bittersweet, right? He's alone. He sees cosmic aloneness. Just like the sutra, he's gone to the heart of relationships. And he's been a left-home person for, you know, 40 years at this point, uh, 30 years. And he says, they're all gone. It's totally empty. There's nobody home at the heart of that. And you get this feeling of words are hard to find. It's like, Nothing to say at that point. But because he's really awake, he flips it over into great compassion. What does he say? Spring is here. The flowers breathe their fragrance to the sun. Mountains, rivers, the earth itself are just the thus come one. So in the midst of all that total cosmic emptiness, what is it? Spring. Flowers, sunlight, fragrant. Everything is the Buddha's body. How wonderful. So this is Jun Kong and Miao Yo. True emptiness and wonderful existence in two verses. It's really beautiful. So I thought that's worth a song. So. floor with a ringing sound that echoed in the air empty space too broke to bits my mad mind stopped right there
hill. The flowers breathe their fragrance to the sun. Mountains, rivers, the earth itself are just the dust come one. So that's um, a voice coming to you strict, straight from Jun Rusu. Actually, he woke up at Gao Minsu, so it's close. But I've got a bunch more. We'll save them for later. One is the guy Zhang Zhuo, who was a Tang Dynasty uh, layman, who woke up and left a verse behind, and. I've got um, another one that I sang today for the Tsuji youth for the very first time because I wrote it last night. And seemed to be okay. Kind of liked it. Yeah, it was uh, use it up, wear it out. Make it do or do without. I own it, it owns me. Living simple, getting free. They say that the winner has the most stuff. But no matter what I had, it was never enough. There's always a new one. I was always behind. Getting the upgrade, I lost peace of mind. Use it up, wear it out. Make it do or do without. I own it, it owns me. Living simple, getting free. The kids sang along with it. Um, I got one about Confucius. Confucius played only one tune. This is a really good anti-greed song. I've sung it a couple times here, but it hasn't quite hit. And uh, I think I got the, I think I put the edge on it this time. Confucius was learning to play guqin from a teacher whose name was Xiang, and Xiang taught him a tune. Confucius played it, and he played it, and he played it, and played it, and he played it, and Xiang says. It's okay. It's good. I got another song for you. You can stop that one now. Confucius says, "Why? I haven't played all the music in this one. There's lots of notes left." He said, "This this song was came from the Duke of Zhou. That's all I need to know. This is music from the Duke of Zhou. I could play this forever. Every note connects with the universe." What do you mean another tune? Greedy. And <laughs> you go, "What? It's true. You know, it's like." Where does that stop? You know. That's an E. That's an eternal E. That'll be reciting, resonating till we're dead and beyond, right? Who needs another one? Greedy. You know. It's like, oh my God. Confucius, you're just too straight. You know. So Confucius says, "Don't get me wrong. There's no need to move along. I ain't played all the music in this song. I'm still singing the first verse. It opens to the universe. My hands have learned, but my mind's not done. I don't need another one." So Xiang says, "You're my best student. Get out of here. I can't stand you."
So, okay, you're too true. Then I've got one more about the wedding banquet that I sang a couple times. And every time I sang the wedding banquet, I met these faces. It was like, you really wrote that song? Like, what is it? How does it go? You're talking about the young girl chewing on her mother's leg. You're talking about the son beating his father's skin on the drum that he's playing. What? Too true. I don't want to hear that song. Sing another one. So I got lots of good new songs coming up. I guess you have to be a monk to appreciate it. Okay, so let's see now. What is up? Um, Tomorrow is a lecture at Gold Sage Monastery down in San Jose. And we'll see you at 9 o'clock if you're up to it. South Bay, Jinshengsi, Gold Sage Monastery. We lecture on the Sutra Golden Light, and that's pretty exciting. Um, Tuesday night, here, Ajahn Pasano will be here lecturing. The Abhayagiri monks are coming down Tuesday, so we're hoping that somebody whose name is Michael will be here to open the door for them, but we'll see. And uh, that's always a big night. Ajahn Pasano is a, a true cultivator and a good lecturer. Um, I will be next week at City of 10,000 Buddhas for the North American Sangha gathering. All the monks and nuns from all over the country are coming to CTDB. We did it. We hosted it years ago. It's our turn again. And that's going to be exciting. And I will be here Friday afternoon and see you next week for the lecture. Um... Tomorrow, there's another event I want to tell you about in case anybody is up to it. Tomorrow is the gathering of blessings at the Interface Center for the Presidio. Over in the Presidio, we've been there for a bunch of years. Tomorrow is the time again. And there will be representatives of 25 different religions there. And our nuns are going to start it off. The very first sound are the bhikshunis. They're going to be reciting the Dabe Jo. And probably Jin Roshi and others will be reciting the Dabe Jo. And if anybody would like to go and give them support, it's just like always, we go over there, four o'clock. So you go to the chapel at the interface center at the Presidio. It's near the Golden Gate Club. There's all this controversy about Doyle Drive being closed, right? Doyle Drive is being repaved and that route in through the Presidio, that's going to be shut. So if you're coming from the north, you've got to go all the way around now. Anyway, that's where it is. It's 4 o'clock tomorrow. I'll be singing the song called... Um, we become it's the URI song so I'll be doing that halfway through so we're going to contribute and uh, everybody is invited to come sing along you'll see lots and lots of 
religious representatives, Islam, Hinduism. Sister Elizabeth is going to sing. She's going to close. Elizabeth Padilla from Brahma Kumaris. She's worth going if for nothing else. Her voice is so incredibly uh, pure and good. So that's tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock. And Ajahn Pasano, Tuesday night. Uh, the rest of our events are running as always. Check out berkeleymonastery.org. I've been posting more to my blog now. There's stuff to read. So Dharma Forest, type Dharma Forest into Google and that'll come up. Um, we've been adding to our uh, archive of sutra lectures. So this will be up. Tell your friends about our webcast. It's really way better. The quality of the image is really good now because we've upped our bandwidth. We went to Comcast, not that I'm advertising, but it's twice as fast. Very nice. So, all right. Have a week full of blessings. Don't forget to pray for the hurricanes. Go right by Taiwan. Uh, in respect to the Venerable Master,